Hi everyone, I'm Sam Barnes. I'm Grace Kyer. And I'm Ariel Landau. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Big Nuke Energy! The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast and on the Big Nuke Energy Twitter belong solely to the co-hosts and not necessarily to their employers, universities, or other organizational affiliations. Any content provided by the co-hosts are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, organization, company, or individual. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of Big Nuke Energy. We hope everyone is staying warm out there, especially if you're in an area where it's snowing. This week, we have with us an amazing guest. Her name is Jordan Hibbs, and she is a Strategic Weapons Action Officer at the U.S. Department of the Navy. Previously, she served as a Presidential Management Fellow at the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of International Affairs and Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. She is currently a member of the National Defense University's Program for Emerging Leaders through the Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction and member of the Young Leaders Program at the Pacific Forum. She also serves on the Board of Directors for the United Nations Association of the National Capital and the Women in International Security DC chapter. Previously, she was a Center for Strategic and International Studies Project on Nuclear Issues Nuclear Scholar and a Mosaic Taiwan Fellow. Jordan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, do you have a fun fact that you would like to share just so we can get to know you a little better? Absolutely. So I always use the fun fact that I have never eaten steak before. I grew up eating chicken and fish. That's just how my mom had raised me and my siblings. Um, so to this day, I still just eat chicken and fish. So I've never eaten steak. Yeah, my family is very similar. We, uh, we don't eat red meat. So I don't think I had steak till I was 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely when people hear it, I, I always use it for a three truths and a lie and everyone always gets it wrong. So it's a great one to, to have in the back pocket. We should start doing two truths and a lie on our show. <laughs> <laughs> maybe for us, maybe not for anyone else. But <laughs> well, Why don't we move into our short discussion question, which is what is your favorite holiday dish? Jordan, do you have a favorite dish? Yes. Um, I am a big fan of baked mac and cheese. Um, the more cheese is <laughs> Jordan, I'm right there with you. We should coordinate meals because I literally could eat baked mac and cheese all day long. <laughs> Me too. It's dangerous. Do you have any like special ingredients that you throw in, like little bacon bits, red pepper flakes? No, I'm pretty traditional with it. Just as many cheeses that I can find in the refrigerator, usually after the holiday. So after Thanksgiving, usually definitely are making a mac and cheese. Um, and it's so nice too in the, in the winter time to, to have a warm dish. So. It's definitely the gift that keeps on giving. Ariel, what about you? What's your favorite holiday dish? I'm just, I'm really big on warm beverages. So recently I've been heating up I've been putting like a clove and a cinnamon stick in a mug and then putting apple cider in it and then heating it up till like it caramelizes a little bit. And it's just, it's given me new, new life, new joy. That sounds also incredible. Maybe to be mm-hmm. enjoyed with some baked mac and cheese. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And then Sam, what about you? I would have to say my mom makes these chocolate oatmeal cookies 
And I actually made them with her a couple weeks ago. And I found out that it's basically just a crap ton of sugar and butter and cocoa powder and then some oats in there as well. So no wonder I loved it so much growing up because it's literally just sugar. But it's really interesting. You have to get the timing right. So you have to mix all the ingredients together. But once you put the oats in, you have a very short time before it hardens. So you have to put it on the parchment paper, like scoop it out of the pot super quickly. And it's always very entertaining to like watch my mom do it because she like somehow knows the exact perfect moment. And she's like, all right, time to scoop. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> but highly, highly recommend. I'll have to find the recipe and share it. It's very, very easy <laughs> and delicious. Grace, how about you? That also sounds delicious. I have recently, as you guys all know, gotten very into baking, not surprising during the, the quarantine, but I've really gotten into baking cinnamon rolls, which are very intensive. They have to proof a lot and I like make my own frosting for them, but they're always really worth it. And I think they're, they're just, they become my Christmas, Christmas food, um, but they're very. Well, if you combine all of our ingredients, it somewhat makes a balanced meal. I mean, it's at least like you have your breakfast, like. you have dinner. <laughs> I guess you could have mac and cheese for lunch too. I would. I'd eat it for every meal. But yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's move into our deep dive for today. So Jordan, how did you get into the nuclear field? Yeah. So, um, so my background is in science and technology policy, and I started my federal career as a presidential management fellow at the U.S. Department of Energy. I started working in energy policy, but quickly learned about DOE's very wide mission space, um, working everything from early stage R&D to market transformation, to production, to maintaining the U.S. nuclear stockpile. And it was on a detail assignment in the Office of International Affairs at the Department of Energy. Uh, I served as DOE's lead officer for energy initiatives in Southeast Asia. And I also supported DOE's multilateral engagement through the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation. And so during this assignment, I was asked to support one of the de Deputy Secretary's trips to Japan um, for the U.S.-Japan Bilateral Commission on Civil Nuclear Cooperation. And it was that assignment that really opened my eyes up to the work of the department in regards to nuclear security, emergency management, um, and decommissioning through the commission's working groups. So it's through kind of my work in my day job, and then also through participating in a developmental program through the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies project on nuclear issues, nuclear scholars program that really allowed me to participate in workshops on nuclear security, nonproliferation, weapons devel development and policy. And so I really knew I wanted to transition into the nuclear field. And so I now work at the U.S. Department of the Navy supporting the Strategic Systems Programs Office. And this office is primarily responsible for maintaining the Trident D-5 submarine launched ballistic missile system, um, which is our nation's primary strategic deterrent, uh, where I serve as a strategic weapons action officer. So this role has really given me a deeper understanding into the interagency work that it takes to support the U.S. strategic deterrent and also the implementation of objectives set out in the nuclear posture review and how our work really fits into the broader U.S. national security strategy and our leadership in the international community. Jordan, that all sounds so, so incredibly important. And I am so excited to pick your brain a little bit more on the details about what you do and your views on technology and policy. But first we wanted to kind of ask you a couple questions about your work with the United Nations Association of the National Capital Arena. 
primarily, what are your main responsibilities in your role there? Yes, um, so the United Nations Association of the National Capital Area is a group made up of community leaders, college students, young professionals who are working towards a common goal. And that goal is to support the important work of the United Nations. So as a board member of the National Capital Area chapter, my primary responsibilities are really related to supporting events and programming uh, to support the sustainable development goals. So this can include events on nonproliferation, uh, on gender equality. It really can be across all of the different sustainable development goals. So the, the work that the organization does is very broad um, and it's also casts a very wide net of the types of folks that are engaged in the organization to really, um, no matter who you are, you can feel a bit closer to the work of the United Nations. Can you talk a little bit more about your work with the UN's capital area to promote nonproliferation and gender equality? Yes, so UNANCA's work um, in the nonproliferation and gender equality arena is really great. So and it's certainly something that I'm really passionate about. I think one area of programming um, that's, that I always like to highlight is the Young Professional Career Dinners that the organization hosts biannually. This year I organized a, a session on breaking into the nuclear field with my good friend uh, Tori Sanchez over at the State Department to really highlight to young professionals who may be in school or recently graduated to understand the opportunities for emerging professionals to get into the nuclear field. Another opportunity is that the United Nations Association is um, being a non-governmental organization, gets a certain number of seats at various meetings at the UN, and they open up that opportunity to members of the United Nations Association's chapters. And so a recent one related to nonproliferation, one that I had participated in was the preparatory committee for the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conference. And so it, these types of opportunities, um, they really try to encourage young folks um, and really folks with all different types of backgrounds to, to go and participate in those meetings to make sure that all voices of our membership are engaged in those types of discussions. And so I think the organization does a really great job at encouraging both young people as well as women to participate in those dialogues um, and represent the, the views of, of our community. That all sounds really, really interesting. And I was wondering how the pandemic has impacted the work you've been doing with this organization. Has it improved your access to all sorts of different people or has it limited how much work you can do with, you know, things like dinners or formal events? Yes. So like many organizations this year, it was certainly a transition into virtual events. And the United Nations Association, I think, like many had to adapt um, to that environment. So the career dinners this year were virtual. I would say that it changes the experience, but it also allows, so there's kind of some pros and some cons. And I think on the plus side, we get to engage with a lot more folks that wouldn't necessarily be able to travel over to the middle of DC to participate in these events in person, and we can reach a lot more folks with this great programming. But I would say on the, the downside, um, I think a, something that a lot of similar organizations are dealing with is that a big piece of these types of engagements is the, the networking and making those personal connections with others working in similar fields. So like many organizations, UNA, USA is certainly adapting as well as all of the chapters are adapting to the new environment um, and trying to create creative ways to, to make sure that these important dialogues continue. And in 2018, you attended the Commission on the Status of Women as a UNA-USA delegate. So to what extent is the UNA-USA upholding 
the Sustainable Development Goal of Gender Equality? Yes. So UNA USA, um, as I mentioned, gets a certain number of seats at these various meetings at the UN. Um, so I was very thrilled to be selected to participate in the Commission on the Status of Women in 2018. The, the meeting, it was such a, a large meeting. It really brings together thousands of folks all, from all over the world, folks working in government, the private sector, other NGOs. And so the, the key pieces, um, particularly probably for folks that are listening to this podcast here that are covered throughout that event is the, the agenda for ensuring women's participation in peace and security, as well as the, the youth peace and security agenda, um, which really prioritizes the value and investment that we can make in, in young folks and encouraging their participation in, in peace and security. And so from the United Nations Association perspective, particularly here in the national capital area, very committed to gender equality, both at the, the international level, but also here in DC, hosting various programming related to gender equality. We actually, following the Commission on the Status of Women at the UN, we, when we came back to DC, we hosted a series of events to talk through the outcomes of the event and invited folks from our organization as well as folks from other organizations that participated to make sure that we were bringing the message of what was being talked about at the UN back here to local folks in DC who are also passionate about gender equality and the other issues that were covered throughout the event. To what extent does the UNA USA take into account the local views perhaps if you're coming back with information from commissions and conferences, to what extent do you modify those to get your message across to the communities that you are engaged with? Yes, so the United Nations Association uh, has many chapters across the US. And so when they make the selections on who to bring to the UN for participation in, in meetings like this, they try to get diversity across many different factors. And one of them is geographic diversity so that when folks leave that meeting, they can go back to their local communities and, and really act on what they've, they've learned and the connections that they've made. And so here in DC, we certainly have a lot of folks that are engaged in the international discussions related to gender equality, but we ha also have a lot of folks that are really passionate about working here, even with the, the local DC council to implement gender equality practices at that city level. And so I think that UNA does a really great job and, and really the types of folks that are drawn to this type of organization are, are very passionate about whatever that issue is. And really all of them are, are covered under the sustainable development goals. So gender equality certainly brings a lot of folks into the organization. And so I think when folks find a community that they can really connect with other people who are also passionate about that, it, it creates a great environment for, for us to, to collaborate at a local level and then at the international level, depending on what opportunity you're participating in. Could our listeners join this organization if they wanted to, or is it not looking for new members? The United Nations Association is absolutely looking for new members. We really get our strength in the, the number of members that we have and the folks that are passionate about various issues that the United Nations is working on. The organization has chapters at colleges and universities, as well as geographic 
chapters. So there are great ways to get engaged. And for, for students, it's actually your membership is free currently. So there is a great opportunity to, to get engaged and also gain some leadership skills and, and get your policy chops up to speed on, on these various issues because the organization, through its programming and events, you can really develop and grow your own personal beliefs and your impact on the community. That sounds like an awesome opportunity. So listeners, check that out. And college kids love hearing the word free. Trust me. Just attach food (laughs) onto it, free food, and you're golden. Right. (laughs) So on the topic of of getting up to speed with, with policy issues, you have a master's in technology and policy. How do you combine those areas in your work? And how do you think those two fields can better complement each other? Or are they like almost mutually exclusive in a lot of the work that you do? I think that science, technology, and policy come together naturally in a lot of unique and interesting ways, particularly in government. Every single job I've held has been at the intersection of science, technology, and policy. And I think in terms of complementing each other, I think one key factor is the communication between the different communities that that we have. So the the science community talking with the policy community, I think that it's really important for folks to be able to to build the skill of communicating complex um, science or technology topics into a way that an average person can understand or a senior leader who has to make a policy decision um, to, to be able to understand what the science or technology area is without having to have a PhD or or graduate level degree to understand what you're saying or what you're writing. I think that the more that we can communicate these types of topics in in a more simple way that more folks can understand, I think the better these different fields can complement each other and really lead to better policy outcomes when we have the right communities talking to each other and the right communication happening between the different audiences. Thank you for that. And One last question I have that might be personally indulgent a little bit, but what is your biggest takeaway from your time as a presidential management fellow? I have many things to say about the presidential management fellows program. Um, And for folks that may not know, the program is for recent graduates can be within one year of graduating or up to two years after you've graduated to apply. And once you um, make it through the application process, resumes, writing samples and things like that. Once you become a finalist, you have the opportunity to get a position in the federal government. And I'm sure many folks know that entering federal service can be a very daunting, difficult process um, through the systems that we have in place currently. And so this program is a great opportunity to enter federal service near your graduation time, and then also get developmental opportunities that are extraordinary. And so I certainly recommend the program to a lot of folks. I would say the biggest takeaway from the program is probably related to mentorship and leveraging the communities that you're a part of. And so I work in DC and I've spent my entire federal service in uh, Washington, DC. So I know that the the communities that I occupy are very small um, and you interact with a lot of the same people depending on where you move to. And so I think that having a community, the Presidential Management Fellows community to leverage and learn from and develop your careers um, on kind of the same trajectory has been the 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 best opportunity from the the Presidential Management Fellows Program. And it also, because the program is focused so much on development, there's a lot of leadership training. And so I've certainly learned a lot about myself as a leader and about the the leaders that are around me through the, the training that's offered through that program. 
And Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't have to have a specific type of graduate degree to apply to become a PMF, right? That's correct. So um, anyone with a graduate level degree or is coming within one year of getting a graduate level degree, you can be like me and have a, a master's in science and technology policy. You can have a, a background in business. You can have a health background. The program has really transformed in, in recent years where they're really looking to place future leaders in positions across all of federal government, not just in a policy space, not just in a public administration space, but really in folks from everything from human resources to IT to policy as well and beyond. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on our show today and just imparting all of your impressive wisdom. We really enjoyed talking with you about your work with the United Nations Association of the National Capital Area. And just in general, Jordan, you are a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. to Jordan for her amazing words of wisdom. We are now going to move on to our non-pro shout out for the week, which is Dr. Beth Cameron, the Vice President at the Nuclear Threat Initiative's Global Biological Policy and Programs. Previously, she was the Senior Director for Global Health Security and Biodefense on the White House National Security Council staff. And I'm probably biased just because I took a class where we simulated the National Security Council, but that is pretty freaking cool. In that position, she was instrumental in developing and launching the Global Health Security Agenda, as well as addressing national security threats relating to biosecurity, bioterrorism, etc. Now, I could seriously go on and on about some of the amazing things that Dr. Cameron has done, but several highlights include she was recently awarded the Office of the Secretary of Defense Medal for Exceptional Civilian Service for her work on the Nun Lugar CTR program while she was the Office Director for the Cooperative Threat Reduction and Senior Advisor for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs. Also, from 2003 to 2010, she oversaw the expansion of the State Department's Global Threat Reduction Program and supported the expansion of the Global Partnership Against the Spread of Weapons and Materials of Mass Destruction. Now, we are also giving her a big shout out today because she has been tapped to be a volunteer on the Biden transition team for the Department of Homeland Security. So go Dr. Cameron, you are amazing. And please feel free to check out her Twitter. She is at Beth Cameron underscore DC, that is capital B E T H, capital C A M E R O N underscore capital D capital C. So big non pro shout out to Dr. Cameron. She is doing some amazing things in the field of biosecurity. She awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh, for sure. We can go ahead and move to toes in the heavy water though. Ariel, take it away. Yeah, so Twitter news this week is that Representative Deb Holland from New Mexico was picked to be Biden's Secretary of the Interior. She's the first Native American to be in this position. And this is huge because this department has historically been terrible to Native people. They've taken land, they did the whole Indian boarding schools thing, which was absolutely terrible. 
So it's really, really important that a Native American is in this position now. The Secretary of the Interior is responsible for public lands. That's over 500 million acres of land. And a lot of this land has been stolen from Native people. So in some ways, it's really exciting that control of this land is, is now resting with a Native American now. And she'll also be in charge of managing the Bureau of Indian Education and the financial assets of American Indians in trust. So knowing all of that, it's kind of crazy that this is the first time a Native American has been in this position. So props to the Biden administration for creating this opportunity for the larger Native American community. Yeah, I think what you said was awesome, Ariel. I think I totally agree with you that it's great to see the Biden team picking a cabinet that is really seeking to be reflective of the country in which we live and trying to reflect the great diversity that makes us, you know, such a such a wonderful and strong place to live. I think it's really great the steps that have been taken to try and pick a cabinet full of diverse people who are also remarkably qualified for the positions for which they've been chosen. I think, you know, they're all just great great picks thus far. Of course, there's been, you know, some controversies thus far about different different picks that have been um, announced, but I think that we've seen just so many qualified people p- picked for so many positions with so many different backgrounds. There's never a lack of qualified people that are available to fill di- diverse roles. So people who keep saying, oh, well, only the white men are the ones that are qualified. That's not true. So, yeah. yeah. Sam, do you want to give us an Iran update? Yeah, sure. So checking in for Iran for the week, what's going on with the Iran deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, all hence refer to it as the JCPOA. So the Supreme Leader of Iran has said that they will swiftly resume their original commitments under the JCPOA if the Biden administration rejoins the deal. It's actually very interesting. Supreme Leader Khamenei and President Rouhani are actually in agreement on this, and that does not often happen. They are in agreement that Biden is going to rejoin the deal and subsequently remove sanctions. Despite these words, though, from its senior leadership, Iran's parliament has recently approved legislation that would ramp up their nuclear activities. So it's just a little interesting to see that disconnect there. So I'm just very curious to see how this plays out. And here's why you should be curious as well. First of all, Iran votes for a new president in June. And if they get a president that has a harder stance on nuclear issues, on U.S.-Iranian relations, this could hinder any nuclear cooperation that the Biden administration hopes to gain. Also, Iran currently has much more low-enriched uranium. They have a larger stockpile of that than they were allowed under the Iran deal. So what are they going to do with all of that uranium? And how long is it going to take them to properly dispose of it because if they aren't able to start disposing of it until June per se and then a new president comes into office who reneges on the deal then things could very much be up in the air and then also there's been a lot of questions about whether or not Biden is going to renegotiate the framework before he rejoins is he going to perhaps change some of the restrictions to be a little loose a little more strict we don't really know all he said right now is that he is just going to re-enter the old framework So I think it's something to definitely keep your eye on in the early days of the Biden administration. Yeah, thank you so much for that update, Sam. I think I totally agree with you that, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how this continues going forward and how um, the Biden uh, team approaches these issues. 
I think it'll be interesting to see those details that you mentioned, including, you know, what are they going to do with the, the uranium? What are they going to do with, you know, the specific clauses of the JCPOA? And so it'll, I guess we'll have to wait and see. For sure. For sure. What's going on in Russia? Well, as many of you probably heard this past weekend, news came out basically that a lot of organizations have been hacked, that FireEye, which is a big security, cybersecurity firm, had been hacked. It was unclear initially who had, who was responsible for the hack, what had happened. And then come Sunday, Monday, we were finding out basically that we think Russia and Russian organizations are responsible for the hack, including Russian or Russian Russian groups that have been responsible for previous hacks. And in news that's highly relevant to our our group, it was announced yesterday that it looked like the National Nuclear Security Administration has been breached as well, along with many other federal federal organizations. The more I hear about it, the more it's shocking and kind of uh, very concerning because a lot of different organizations have been subject to this breach of security and there's been a lot of articles recently basically saying hey we tried like we're we're trying to to boost our security but it's it's a trust issue it's an issue with how we're approaching it from a ground level and i'm not very familiar with you know cybersecurity and that side of things but i think it's really concerning and i also think it's really challenging when you have an incoming administration a, a transition and you know a russian government that is trying to figure out how to approach the Biden team and the Biden administration. When you see something like this, it's not, you know, the foundation of a trust-based relationship that you can expect to see going forward. And I think, you know, no one expects Biden to have an approach like Trump did to Russia. I don't think there'll be, you know, any love lost between Biden and Putin. There hasn't been historically. But I think that when you have actions like this and you see Russia not taking any steps to, to build that trust and to actively undermine it. In fact, I think um, that's really concerning when you have an incoming incoming transition team. And it threatens really the last remaining, I would say one of the last remaining, if not the last remaining real piece of connection between the U.S. and Russia, which is New START, the, the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. And I think it really makes it harder to negotiate, harder to extend, harder to negotiate a follow-on treaty when you have actions like this, which, you know, it's, it's the being tough on Russia is a really bipartisan issue now, which I guess is good on the one hand that you have this, this bipartisan um, unity on what we can do on this front. But I think it's, it's really hard to think about what it will be like going forward and how we can um, really build trust and build this relationship if Russia basically is not here to play ball. Yeah, honestly, Grace, that was very thorough. All I have to say is I agree this puts a little bit of pressure on the incoming administration to deal with threats such as cyber yeah. attacks by Russia. And I think it's also really interesting, you know, when the Trump team came in, it was in 2016, well, it was 2017. We were only a few years into the, the Ukraine crisis. We were only a few years into, I mean, not only a few years, but we were several years into to the sanctions regime that's been put in place by the U.S. and other Western governments on Russia and Russian entities. And I think, you know, we've seen how that's kind of really become concrete. But we've also seen recently that Russia is not the main issue and Russia is not going to be one of the main focuses for the incoming team. And I think I, I think it would have been the case regardless of who had won the presidential election. You know, we have a lot of domestic challenges that we're facing right now, not least among them the pandemic, along with other issues, um, reckoning of racial justice, our economic um, challenges going forward uh, in many ways caused by the pandemic. 
And you also have a focus on democracy from the Biden team and China, which are, you know, probably real issues that should also be focused on. But it seems like have something like this, it's, it's, it's challenging to think about how a new team can, can deal with that when there's only so many hours in a day and so many issues. Definitely. Definitely. We'll have to see what happens. But moving on to proliferation patriarchy for the week, I was curious what you guys are feeling. You know, a lot of this, we're getting to the holiday season. A lot of people are traveling home, seeing family members that they might have not seen for a while. I mean, hopefully all in a safe, COVID safe manner. I'm going to go ahead and state that right now. But I was curious your guys' opinions on how to handle family members that disagree with you politically. I mean, I know every family dynamic is different. Some don't ever talk about their problems. Some yell at each other and that is a daily occurrence. But like, what what can we do if something one of our family members says makes us uncomfortable because they're disagreeing with us on a certain political issue that we are passionate about? Yeah, so I think something at least that I have encountered with my family is how to like understanding that being a good ally means that you're not taking critique personally. So if you're critiquing the patriarchy, it doesn't mean that you hate all men. It's more about acknowledge, like if you're a man, you're inherently part of the patriarchy and part of being a good ally and being a feminist would be to acknowledge that and then work to dismantle that system. But I think that's also hard because it's it's a double-edged sword because then if someone is making sexist comments, like how do you t- not take that personally? So it's kind of hard to navigate. Yeah, I think what Ariel said, it's, it's really hard to navigate. I know I this year I will not be seeing a lot of members of my family in person which is hard, you know, as it is for, for everyone, but also the, the right decision from a public safety perspective. My family, we don't really talk about political issues that much, but I think, you know, especially in larger gatherings and larger groups, I think the way to approach it is, I don't know, I think in my experience, the way to approach it is to come at it from a place of compassion and love and empathy and being in a position to advocate for the issues that you believe in because you are a loved one and you are talking to a loved one. And I think that it can be really, really challenging sometimes to, to approach these conversations and to, to approach these people. But I think if you come at it from a place of love and compassion and understanding, and you know, not giving too much understanding, right? There, there are times when it doesn't make sense to engage on things and you just have to, to cut your losses. But I think if a family member comes to you and is sharing their ideas and opinions, I think, you know, you can use your role as, as a close family member to, to discuss what you're thinking and contextualizing how the person you're speaking to might, might come at these issues. Sam, what about you? What's your approach? Yeah, I think those are all really fantastic points. And Ariel, I think I needed to hear you say that I shouldn't take things personally because I know a lot of the times I get personally offended by things that my parents might say when they have nothing to do with me in reality. So I definitely think that's important and vice versa. So I think it's also knowing yourself and walking that line between allowing yourself to get baited into saying something versus saying something because you think it's a productive part of the conversation. So I know my family kind of teases me as, okay, 
you guys are gonna laugh when I say this, as like the woke one. Oh my um, god, same though. <laughs> <laughs> so they say things, and then they're like, oh, but Sam wouldn't say that. Sam would say blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, yes, I would say that, because that's how I feel, and that's how I think the world should work. And so I guess I'm just always like ready to fight. And so I come in swinging and they bait me and I always take the bait. So I think my challenge, and if anyone else is also like this, experiencing this is when I, when I see my family over the holidays is learning when to respond and when to just let it be a tease. They don't actually mean any harm by it. They don't actually like think I hate all men. You know, I should just calm down for a moment. And if it does bother me, approach them in a way that maybe isn't always in the moment. Cause I know personally, I'm really bad about that. I'm ready to like go as soon as someone says something, but that's not how all people work. So. Yeah, I I agree with you, Sam. I think it's, you know, a case of picking your battles and picking, picking the times to, to work on things. And I think, you know, especially when what we saw with the election, right. The election laying bare, these very real divisions. And I think, you know, going forward, having a new administration, having a new government in office, I think it's really important to listen to people and to think about how they're approaching these questions and to really listen. And if you come to a complete impasse and there's no solution going forward, thinking of how you can handle that, right? Does that mean just not talking about politics with this family member? Maybe. Does that mean, you know, maybe not talking to this family member as much, maybe. Does that mean continuing to have a good relationship with them, even though you know that you are at an impasse with these issues? Also, maybe. And I think what AOC said during the election period was really, really resonant with me, which is there is someone out there who only you can get to go and vote for Joe Biden. And even though obviously the election is over, I think there are people out there who only you, whoever you are, can impact in a conversation because your opinion and your views and your voice matters that much to another person. And I can think of a lot of people in my life who have presented ideas and issues to me where if it had been anyone else, I wouldn't have even listened or considered, which maybe is you know not the best approach. But I think it's really important to think about how there are people who you are close enough with that only you or only you and a few other people have that kind of impact. And it's not, you know, your whole family. I mean, in my case, and there are plenty of members of my extended family whom I love dearly, but who I, I know I could not have that kind of impact on. And I, I just, I know that. And that's fine. I think that's a very uplifting way to, to kind of come to a close to this episode. One other thing in proliferation patriarchy, um, it's Dr. Biden. Thank you very much. I don't understand why this is a big deal. I'm sorry, it's so ridiculous in my opinion. If someone else has a, a better way to say it, please do. But like, I just don't understand. She She's a doctor, <laughs> so I don't, call her doctor. I, I don't even want to give voice to that article. I read yeah. it. I don't want to <laughs> give voice to whoever that person is. The best part of that article was to me when um, the, the author, if you can call it that, said, he was talking about weirdly like being in five, not being in Phi Beta Kappa, but working for Phi Beta Kappa. And I'm like, you know what? I'm actually a member of Phi Beta Kappa. And like, it's an exclusive organization and it sounds just like you're so bitter. But also the other thing, and I, I think this is an uplifting way to, to end that discussion on what we don't need to give more air to, but have you guys seen the episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine with the dentist? I've seen all of them. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know, when, so there's this episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine where Captain Hole is like interrogating this dentist and someone calls him doctor and they get into this huge argument about who can be called a doctor 
And basically the, the captain's opinion is like only art historians and people with, you know, PhDs and stuff can be, I mean, not boiling it down, but he's like, of course those people are doctors and the dentist is, you know, he's saying those people aren't doctors. And that's all he could think of. But that was, you know, a humorous satire, whereas mm-hmm. the, the Wall Street Journal <laughs> article is apparently sincere. So. Yeah, I actually, I learned the other day that like PhD doctors, doctorates. So medical doctors stole the term doctor from the academics. So if anyone deserves to be salty, it's not the dentists out there. Yeah. And I also think it's just, I mean, again, I don't want to give too much airtime or or thought or even breath to to talking about this article. But I mean, talk about just completely devaluing our educators and not valuing them and not taking them for you know, what they are and what they are worth. And I think it's just really indicative of these larger problems that we're seeing now laid bare by the pandemic and just in general of how we treat our educators and how we treat our teachers. And I think we are really fortunate to have someone in the first lady position who knows these details intimately and who is so highly educated on them. And I think we need to to value our educators a lot more going forward. And we are seeing how much that is the case both before and during the pandemic. Could not agree more. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in for another episode. Thank you again to Jordan for an amazing conversation. If you are traveling during the holiday season, please stay safe. Please wear a mask. Please bring hand sanitizer. And please just be conscious of your personal space around other people. Don't get right next to other people. They don't want it. It might cause them to have a panic attack. So I'm not speaking from personal experience at all. But anyways, please keep your distance. And thank you all for tuning in. Wishing everyone a happy holiday season. Lots of safe, fun holiday activities, hopefully.